after the death of her husband, Sarah Winchester, inherited what amounts to, in today's numbers, $550 million. On top of that, she had 50% in the Winchester uh, Repeating Arms Company, which gave her, again in, in today's numbers, $26,000 a day. So you may ask, what did this lady do with her money? Well, in simple terms, she built a house. After her husband died, Sarah went to a medium and asked the medium if she would channel her husband so that she could know what she needed to do. The medium told her that she needed to move away from Boston and go west and that she needed to build a house continually to house the spirits of the people who were killed by the Winchester rifle. And so in 1884, Sarah Winchester moved to California and began building her house. She bought an unfinished farmhouse in Santa Clara Valley and continued construction on an everyday basis until her death in 1922. She consulted no architect. Instead, she communicated with the spirits and they told her what they wanted built in the house. And so there was constant ongoing construction in this place. It became seven stories tall at one point, but they finally removed the top stories. The house, as you can imagine, had some real oddities to it as it was built so hap haphazardly. Doors that opened into walls. Windows were put between rooms so that you could see into the adjacent room. Stairs were built that went nowhere. I mean, can you imagine if we were to visit this house not knowing the backstory to it, and we opened a door and we were standing on the precipice of two stories. The door opened to the outside. You can see it uh, there. The door is open. Climbing a weird staircase only to bump our head on the ceiling because the staircase was built straight into the ceiling itself. We would go through this house and think, this thing is a monstrosity. We've never seen anything like this. What was wrong with this lady? I mean, at some point, you would think, going through there, you would think, God, get me out of here. It's like a, a crazy house. Well, in some way, this house symbolizes the way Bible believers feel about our culture today. 
We read in our uh, papers and television and on uh, all digital media, and we think, what in the world has happened to our culture and our country? It's a monstrosity. It's something we've never seen before. And the more we hear, the more we realize that this structure, this nation, that this culture wants to build is fraught with errors and riddled with inconsistencies. What they're talking about in this socialistic, godless surge makes absolutely no sense to us as Bible-believing Christians. So we naturally think to ourselves, what in the world has happened to our country? A couple of weeks ago, we went historically uh, in, into our country's past, and we looked at the things that have happened that have led up to today. We're in a series entitled, How Did We Get Here? With the rise of secular humanism, theological liberalism, and a cultic culture, we've lost our way today. Did you know that, that worldwide there are at least seven people who claim to be Jesus Christ? Worldwide, at least seven who proclaim that they are the incarnate Son of God. The one I'll show you is, uh, and the reason I show this one is because you get a twofer. That's Jesus, and that's Mary Magdalene, believe it or not. Uh, his name is A.J. Miller, and uh, her name is Mary Suzanne Luck. But when they met, he convinced her he was Jesus, and then he convinced her that, he was, that she was Mary Magdalene, and so they married and now lead the, a cult in Australia. But he's one of seven. So many branches and, and outposts and lies and deceit that are happening in our world today. Claims from every corner, voices railing. It's like the illustration of last week that people are walking around with blindfolds on and they don't know where they're going. People calling to them on the sidelines, come this way, come this way. And they are lost, blindfolded. They don't know what to believe, which way they should go, who is right and who is wrong. And they are perpetually treading water. In the 1980s, five men spent 80 days orbiting the earth. In that period of time, they had no way to take baths, so they just had to use a washcloth. 
every 24-hour period, they saw 16 sunrises and 16 sunsets. Eating was difficult as well. If they stuck their fork in a, and some food and started toward their mouth and hesitated or turned their face to talk to someone, the fork would stop, but the food would keep going and hit them in the face. If they tried to or had to turn a screw, they would stick the screwdriver into the screw and then they would turn themselves to turn the screw. But the worst part of their adventure was the fact that they were in this cylinder that spun and they had no way of knowing what was up and what was down. They had no fixed vertical of where they were. And so they came back confused, exhausted, and miserable. They completely lost perspective of where they were. When a person loses that kind of perspective and doesn't know north from south, up from down, there is no anchor. There is no reference point. They're not tied down to anything. And therefore, they are susceptible to any doctrine of man that the wind blows through. Any approach to try to understand our culture, which is our task, any approach to try to reasonably get our minds around what has happened in our country must address the doctrine of God. Now, again, my task this morning is, is not to list the attributes of God. Most of us know those well. But instead, it's to look at and identify the contrast, the disparities of who God is relative to the two sides of our culture. And what we find is that there is a great disconnect between who we are and our belief and understanding of God and who those opposed to us are in their understanding of God. Let me share a couple of terms with you. You'll be familiar with most. But people generally fall into one of these categories as it relates to belief and understanding of who God is. The categories are these. Theism, secondly, deism, thirdly, agnosticism, and fourthly, atheism. Now, theism, theologically speaking, is who we are. Theism is the belief in a personal, holy God who intervened in this world in the incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus, 
who sacrificed himself on our behalf that we might have forgiveness, regeneration, and heaven as our home. That's theism. Deism, on the other hand, is a belief in creator God, but he's not the God of the Bible. Deists believe that God spoke the word into the world into creation and then walked away. It's like the watchmaker from, uh, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, the, the watchmaker. He creates the watch. There is a watchmaker. The watch doesn't, doesn't simply appear. The earth doesn't birth the watch. There was a watchmaker, they believe. But then the watchmaker finished the watch, put it in the display case, and walked away. That's a deist, deism. And then there's agnosticism. That's a funny word, but somehow it draws people to it. Many people are comfortable saying they are agnostic, communicating that, hey, you believe in God? Fine. You can't prove it, can't disprove it, so I'm just an agnostic saying that uh, I don't know. Well, they're in error if they believe that that is a comfortable position. The term actually means no knowledge. In Latin, it's rendered ignoramus. You see, agnostics are not just saying, I don't know. They're saying, I don't care to know. They're saying, don't bother me with the facts right now. I'm not interested in any evidence right now. I don't want to talk about a reasoned faith in God. I'm good not knowing. I'm good not caring. The Bible actually addresses this issue of agnostics or agnosticism. In Romans 1, 18 and 19, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. They are not not knowers, they are truth suppressors. God has revealed in mankind his eternity, and they are suppressing the truth. We don't know because we don't want to know. And then the final term is atheism. In Greek, the Greek language, anytime you want to negate something, you just put an alpha or an A in front of it, like this. So atheism is theism, who we are not. 
Theist? Not. Atheism. Atheism will tell us God does not exist. Trust me. I know. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And they are corrupt. Their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. So my question is, what are these people's lives actually tied to? What, what is the foundation upon which they are building their lives? What is their, what is their grounding? What is their strength? What is their hope? And the answer is nothing. It's nothing. They're free floaters doing right in their own eyes. And that's a formula. In fact, the definition of anarchy. Who among that group has built their house upon the foundation of the rock of Christ? Who among that group has hope, real hope, that there is something beyond this world and that it impacts dramatically the way you live today? Who among that group has any kind of real foundation to build their life. Deists, not a chance. Though they may believe in a creator God, they think he doesn't care about them. They think he doesn't even observe and watch. They think he never intervenes. The deists have no hope. They're not tied to anything. Because, see, the question is not, do you believe in God? It's, have you been born again? Agnostics, the suppressors of truth, they have no hope. These guys don't want to know the truth. They don't care about the truth. These are the people that say, and how many people have said this to me? I don't want to talk about it right now. I'm not interested in it right now. Maybe later. After I've had my fun live my life, maybe right before I die. Atheists, seriously? What could atheists be tied to? My point is this. These folks in our culture that oppose who we are as Bible believers have no moral compass to follow. No foundation. 
They don't know if they're upside down or right side up. And since they have no concept of where they're going, nothing makes sense and they are in perpetual free fall. Not long ago, a website called The Experience Project came online and began asking visitors to the website to share their thoughts, life experiences by answering certain questions asked by the website. Questions like, what does loneliness feel like to you? Questions like, if you could, who would you spend time with? And another question, what is your favorite pastime? In response to this last question, a young lady whose handle was beyond repair said this, I prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to be who I am. The darkness allows me to be who I am and what I truly feel. In the light, all things have a chance to be seen and revealed. Darkness makes it much easier to hide. You see, in the darkness, you can lose yourself, she said. Being lost in the dark is a great place to be because then you are free from what you were and you can be anything you want to be. The darkness is bliss. So what do we do as Bible-believing Christians with a culture that is moving so rapidly in that direction, in that darkness, what do we do? And so opposed to who we are. How do we respond? Well, first of all, we have to realize this is a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual battle. And realize that they are unredeemed. They are blindfolded. They are in darkness. And they're lost. It, it, it's not that we're better than they are at all. We've simply received a free gift that has transformed our lives. It's not anything we did. So it's not that we're better than they are. It's just that they are in darkness, lost, and in perpetual spin. And secondly, that they will remain lost 
and they will perish in their lostness if they're not found. And thirdly, lastly, what we must do is call out to the Lord of the harvest to wake us up. The fields wide unto harvest. Workers, God's workers, holy calling, God, wake us up. When you leave this morning, I want you to take this sheet. It's on the back. My wife Pam will be standing back there by the table so you'll know which one it is. It's called, Who is Your One? And the sheet encourages you to let God put somebody on your heart. And when I'm talking about you having to go out and, and street preach or save the world, we're talking about your one. And this sheet from the North American Mission Board will help you to develop the right mindset and strategies for being a worker in the harvest. So when you leave this morning, pick one of these up. I'm going to. I want each of you to. And to sincerely pray through it for that one that God puts on your heart. Will you do that for me? Take a sheet and seriously consider the Lord's will and plan for you. All right. If you would like to view the Who's Your One document mentioned by Pastor Johnny in his sermon, you can find the link to the PDF version from the North American Mission Board found in our post on highlandclovis.com for this sermon. You can also find the video version of this sermon, and the link will be in the description on our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. Thank you.